Welcome to How Did I Get Here, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the careers of working professionals to learn about their journey so far, career joys and struggles, and advice for people considering the same path as them. My name is Erica Lipton, and this season we are talking to Protestant pastors and asking them the question, how did they get here? My name is Robin Heinecke, and I'm the lead pastor at Arch Street United Methodist Church in Center City, Philadelphia. I'm actually beginning my 18th year as the lead pastor here. Um, my duties uh, really have, have remained the same from pretty much throughout those 18 years uh, because uh, we simply, I'm simply involved in almost everything. Um, We've always had a very hands-on ministry with our most vulnerable neighbors, our unhoused, unsheltered uh, neighbors, and I've always been closely associated with that work, whether it's a community meal or what we do now, expanding our services to uh, provide showers and laundry and um, drop-in uh, services, uh, access to computers and so forth during the week. And so uh, I take my time, my, my turn, uh, working in that uh, in that way as well. Um, I'm generally preaching almost every Sunday, except for vacations and occasionally uh, a series or two for Black History Month or some other special events. Uh, preaching is a big part of uh, the work that I do. Uh, very much committed to uh, justice ministries. So we are. Uh, a reconciling congregation uh, within the United Methodist uh, system. That means we are advocating for the full inclusion of LGBTQIA plus persons in the life of the church, including ordination, marriage, and access to all of what the church uh, has to offer in the way of leadership positions and services. Uh, we're also a sanctuary congregation, meaning uh, we uh, have in the past uh, provided sanctuary for an undocumented immigrant and uh, also um, conduct and provide uh, a space that is free uh, from weapons and anything else that might threaten a person's uh, sense of well-being while they're in the space. Um, we have been and are, uh, we are a founding member of POWER, Philadelphians Organized to Witness of POWER, and we build the organization now is actually expanding to become statewide, and that organization uh, has been at the forefront of much of the uh, work around school funding reform, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, economic dignity, advocating for a living family wage uh, for everyone in the city of Philadelphia and beyond, um, and has done a lot of work with climate justice as well. Um, my, I, I visit uh, the sick and the shut-in. I uh, uh, really do a wide range of activities, which I think uh, really makes ministry exciting and fresh and um, keeps me coming back every day. Yeah, it sounds like you do a little bit everything. Um, so when you were a kid, I'm guessing that wasn't like what you dreamed of when you were, you know, your dream job as a kid. So did you have like a, when you were a kid, you wanted to grow up to be? Yeah, I was, um, I grew up on a small farm in Lancaster County. 
Uh, our family then moved to a, uh, a house in town, right, in Mountville, which is a really small little town. But we kept um, active on the farm. Um, so, you know, I was always um, interested in um, exploring how things worked, interested in people, always found myself uh, kind of taking up for the person who was left out and left alone, always had sort of a proclivity to kind of get along with almost everybody. I didn't belong to any particular group at school, um, kind of made myself, um, I guess, a, a person that was open to the experiences of almost everybody that was around me. So I think that I realized that early on in life. Um, you know, I thought about this question because uh, you gave them to me in advance and I appreciated that. Uh, I can remember a childhood experience that I think now I would consider uh, sort of uh, foundational for my decision to become um, you know, a, a pastor. Um, I remember I was six years old. My father had a parakeet and the parakeet died. And um, I uh, took the parakeet and I put the parakeet in a shoebox and um, I made a cross out of popsicle sticks and I gathered all the neighborhood kids, got a shovel out of the tool shed and dug a, um, a grave in my mother's flower garden and then... Sure she yeah, she loved that. Uh, and then laid the parakeet to rest with uh, this congregation around me and said a prayer for the parakeet. So I think there was really always something about honoring life, right? And believing that life went beyond uh, sort of what we know and somehow celebrating life uh, and acknowledging the passing of life into new life um, with other people. So I remember that vividly. I don't know whether I actually began saying then I want to be a preacher. I think that came later. Um, but I was always in church, even when my parents didn't go, uh, even when they left the local church I was in for another church. Uh, I went to the same neighborhood, United Methodist Church in my little town, uh, and remained a member there until I was ordained and began my service. Uh, as a pastor here in Eastern Pennsylvania. Wow. So even like as a kid, you were kind of gathering that congregation to... Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, you look back now and you think, what what made me do that? I have no idea. <laughs> I think there is this sense of um, calling that we don't even somehow realize until we match that with our actions, right? Like we match that with what we like doing. I don't think it's something that is only a... Um, it is very spiritual and very deep, but I think it actually acts it, you know, it creates this embodiment of what that means in, uh, in ritual and in practice and in service. So take us from, you know, the parrot funeral through all of the years to now, kind of like, can you give us your journey and kind of a summary? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so high school was, um, I was a junior in high school. Um, I had um, the responsibility of church. I was on the choir. I was the acolyte. 
I was there for every every service that they had. Um, and again, oftentimes going by myself, not with parents or any other family members. Um, and yeah. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt your story, but what do you think like made you do that or motivated you to do that as a high schooler? Well, you know, um, I guess it was early on when we started going to um, St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Mountville. Um, I think it was a neighbor or somebody in our family. I'm not sure why my father even said this, but he came out and made this pronouncement. He says, if you're going to go to church, you might as well go to the church in your neighborhood. You don't need to drive to a church far away. Right? And so that kind of stuck with me, and I kind of believed that. I kind of believed that being part of a community, like the, the comprehensive part of being a community, whether it's civic, uh, a civic sort of responsibility or a faith uh, connection was important to kind of put those together. Uh, and even so, even when he went against his own word and left the church, um, I, I said, I'm going to keep that word. And to me, that was really important. And so that kind of stayed with me throughout. Um, very conservative congregation, uh, very much connected to uh, sort of this personal relationship with Jesus, which I appreciated, which I still appreciate. Um, went to an uh, evangelistic service one Wednesday night. And I think I was probably, six, I was at least 16, because I know I was driving. Uh, the preacher that night was, uh, I still remember the topic, his sermon title was One Leg in Heaven. Now this is going to sound kind of um, unbelievable, but it was true. This man had lost his leg in a car accident, uh, had a prosthetic, and his sermon was about getting to heaven. And obviously, having lost his leg, and uh, I guess believing that somehow his body would be restored uh, in heaven. Um, I, don't know if it, I don't know if it was the message, or if it was the music, or what it was, but I remember that night, the night I went to the altar, you know, um, and in sort of traditional fashion, um, gave my life to Christ, and from then on, uh, the pastor of the church was kind of uh, attentive to my spiritual um, sort of growth and began uh, suggesting that maybe ministry was something I might want to consider. Had conversations with me, my parents, and so forth. Um, what was also interesting is I never, I went through confirmation class in eighth grade, and when the preacher asked us if we were ready to be confirmed, I was the only one out of that class of about 12 middle schoolers who said no, I wasn't ready. Really? So um, I just didn't feel like I didn't I didn't feel like it was something I was doing that had integrity. I thought it was just sort of the culmination of a class, right? Things that something you were supposed to do. So I never was uh, confirmed or became a member of the church until uh, junior high school. Oh, wow. Uh, but that was about the same time that all of this other these experiences were happening. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, uh, junior high school, uh, I decided that ministry was the main option. Um, uh, nothing else changed. I, you know, I, I was still active in school, extracurricular activities. Uh, then I went to Albright College, which, uh, which was a United, it is a United Methodist related school. Um, 
and like each year, and was a religion major, uh, so each year kind of had this confirmation of of this call and of these experiences of actually living and being part of an organization and of a community of faith. And kind of each year was kind of renewed. Like I would get this sense, nothing earth shattering, but I would get this sense that um, I was um, best suited to uh, ordain ministry. Um, graduated from Albright. Not just any ministry, ordained ministry. Ordained ministry. Um, there was a leadership component, there was an organizing component, there was a certain amount of uh, integrity and responsibility that came with that work, but most of all there was a sense of real meaning, like real, a deep sense of, of having some meaningful work to do. Now I don't believe ordination requires, I mean I don't believe that only ordained people have that, I, mm -hmm. I certainly don't believe that. But for me, that was kind of the pathway that would actually actualize that the best for me at that point in time. I think at the end of my senior year in college, I was, um, and then, then the other thing that was really seminal for me was after my freshman year in college, I went um, and served as an intern here in Philadelphia in the German, lower Germantown neighborhood with um, Reverend Herbert Snyder. Um, Advocate St. Stephen's. It was a United Methodist um, yoking of two congregations, two United Methodist congregations, um, both uh, struggling financially. They eventually merged. But this was back in 1972, 73, 74. And so over the next several uh, summers, I interned there doing summer camp work, uh, overnight camp work, uh, preaching on Sundays, assisting with worship, uh, visiting, uh, being involved in community ministries. And that church was, without fanfare and without a um, whole lot of sort of normal progressive pride, mm. uh, was an integrated, truly integrated church, black and white, mm. economically as well. So it just kind of happened without yeah, intention. It was neighborhood based and commitments were made to um, the the neighborhood that where the greatest number of African American families lived when the merger happened. Mm -hmm. um, so the church where those families were attending was the church that the entire leadership of the congregation decided was the place uh, that they would locate. Um, and put resources there. Uh, so urban ministry, um, hands-on ministry, uh, racially, economically diverse ministry was really at the forefront and, and early on in my experience. Uh, it was also there where um, I was, uh, became even more open to the inclusion of LGBTQIA persons. This is way, 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 way back you know, at the beginning of the movement, uh, just as the church was enacting their uh, horribly restrictive rules around uh, the participation of you know, uh, LGBTQIA persons and the, the extremely hurtful and traumatizing language that still appears in, in the Book of Discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and right away we began working to reverse that. Yeah, um, yeah so um, I think for me then that was my introduction to urban ministry as well. I came from a small town, um, small farm, um, and in that experience I think I gained confidence and a lot of skill, uh, sort of uh, everyday sort of um, common sense skill about how to move and be um, a person uh, in a community that was um, diverse. Um, after college, I went to Duke University, uh, the Divinity School there. Did you go right out of college? I went right out of college. Oh, wow. Um, no breaks. No breaks. Um, went to Duke because the chaplain at Albright, um, Dr. Urigan, my Old Testament pastor at Albright, um, uh, had uh, connections to do. Um, and so it was also uh, a school that was more academically oriented as opposed to pastoral care oriented. And I felt I had a lot of experience in pastoral care because of the work I've been doing. Um, I failed to mention that while I was at Albright, I was uh, a student pastor and youth leader at Holy Cross United Methodist Church in Reading. So I moved my bike from the college campus to Holy Cross, which was downtown, uh, Sunday mornings, and then did youth group Sunday nights, and did that for four years while I was at, uh, at Albright wow. as well. So I had a lot of like church experience, a very diverse yeah. church experience. Yeah. The Holy Cross was uh, a wealthier congregation at the time. Uh, city, uh, I wouldn't call it urban, it was city. Mm -hmm. Urban is, uh, in my mind, was more grassroots. Uh, Holy Cross was more city people who navigated the city, people who had power positions in the city. Um, so that made sort of a different kind of context of ministry. So you were really like, just like itching to get out there. You were like, I'm not going to wait till seminary. Like, I want to do something. Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I just figured that if I was interested and wanted to do this, let's test it. Mm -hmm. Frankly, by the end of my senior year in college, I was kind of tired, <laughs> tired of church work. Um, not tired of the you know creating uh, spaces to to reflect on that work and to learn more and you know, not tired of theological um, education mm. but kind of tired of, of the work um, and so when I went to uh, Duke I did I opted out of all the field education requirements because of all the work I had done mm. and so while I was at Duke while I was taking classes I worked um, at the women's gym checking ID cards painting offices, the pool, doing odd jobs, because Duke at the time had um, two different campuses, the East and West Campus. Now they were completely now, the East Campus had once been the campus for women and the West Campus the campus for men. Now that was all uh, very different when I was there. There wasn't that kind of segregation, but the gym uh, that they had on the East Campus was still the office space for the women's sports programs mm -hmm. and so forth. So 
So anyway, um, I guess they felt as though a seminarian was a safe hire, um, which turned out to be in my case. Uh, so I worked, uh, I worked there, and also uh, for a couple summers between seminary uh, years, I uh, worked for um, the bus company in Lancaster. I drove a city bus uh, one summer, and then the next summer I um, worked on the washing floor and washed and cleaned buses. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a job. That's why so you kind of went from doing church work in undergrad to rehearse some odd jobs in right. uh, something. Was that like, I, I know you said you were kind of like worn out a little bit, but was it like intentional to say I want to focus all of my ministry power on study? Or did no, it just kind of work think, out? I think for me it was sort of this, this young sort of, uh, I was young, uh, I don't know if I... I know I said I was tired of it, but I don't think I was tired of the work as much as I was questioning whether I wanted to do the work. Mm -hmm. It's just the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. And so I think I kind of shifted from that um, just intensive engagement in church work to let me step away from it for a while and think about, is this really the career I want to pursue? Mm -hmm. right? Because I had known nothing else. Religion major in college, seminary, three years, and um, I was putting a lot of energy, resources, and um, putting my future kind of all in that, in that, um, that pathway. So I think it was mostly just sort of testing myself. And so, so those three years, you graduate seminary, you're kind of figuring out where do you go from there. Yeah. So while I was finishing my last semester in seminary, um, and having had so much experience in urban ministry, uh, knowing that coming back to Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, appointments could be in a variety of contexts. Rural, suburban, small town. Um, I uh, was very committed to urban ministry. Expressed that along the way to all of the sort of the, the places where you plug in, right? Mm -hmm. To the denominational places yeah. you plug in. So, were you doing your ordination process while you were in the seminary? Then? Yeah, yeah. I, after my second year in seminary, I, I was ordained a deacon. Okay. At that point the deacon's ordination was a step toward elders' ordination. Mm. It was later when the church, the general church, um, refined that and a deacon, the deacon's order became separate from uh, elders. Mm. I, I forget the year that was happening, but when I came through, it was, um, you could be ordained a deacon mm. after, I guess after two-thirds of your seminary education, which I did. So I was part of the district committee, interviewing processes, all that process was going on simultaneously. Um, forget the question now. Um, once you graduated seminary, sorry, I backed up. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was graduating, yeah, I was in my, sec my last semester, and uh, my advisor was um, a missionary kid, and his parents had been missionaries in China. 
and he was very much uh, committed to the ecumenical movement at the time as well, uh, an interfaith um, proponent of interfaith dialogue as well. Learned a lot from him, um, and I expressed to him my concern about uh, going into the appointment system. If you're United Methodist, you are uh, you benefit from what's known as a guaranteed appointment, uh, but you also commit to itineration, meaning the bishop uh, with consultation with local congregations in the cabinet appoints you each year to a church or to a community or to a ministry, and it could be different each year. Um, I was really, really worried about being appointed someplace other than uh, Philadelphia, frankly. Uh, that's where I felt I was being called to. I expressed this. Um, but there was no ever, there's never a guarantee. Mm -hmm. So, um, in, you know, in talking to my advisor, he suggested that, okay, uh, what, you, what you might do uh, to sort of stretch this process out a little bit is to apply to a general board of global ministry program known as the US2 program, uh, now called Global Fellows, Global, global Mission Fellows Program. They had two tracks, a, a mission intern track and a US2 track. Mission interns were assigned for a period of time overseas to a United Methodist uh, mission setting. US2s were assigned for two years to a local mission setting. Those settings were vetted by the Global Ministries uh, Board. Um, they were um, community ministries, local church ministries, but each one of them had a had a had presented a uh, sort of a profile and had been vetted and then approved as a placement site, whether it was overseas or uh, nationally. So I applied to that program and was accepted. And so that was then a two-year commitment. Um, in the process of that, uh, there's a two-week training, pretty intensive training near the end of the summer, and then you were assigned. So seminary completed, sort of May, June, graduation, mm -hmm. uh, August, I believe it was all, it could have been July, two weeks of training with the General Board of Global Ministries in Boston. To the, to the end, you were going to be assigned someplace anywhere in the United States. Oh, wow. Right? So um, at the end of that training, they make a match. They match you to wherever. And they matched me with some community ministry, I don't know where it was. Um, I don't have in the South somewhere. I said, oh, I really don't think that's for me. I, I don't think that's going to work out. You know, feel it. And um, kind of kept uh, sort of pushing back and said, no, 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 no. And then eventually um, I just said, can I see if I can find a placement? Um, I guess they were getting frustrated with me. And so I found uh, a place here in Philadelphia called the Midtown Parish. It was a parish of four, or at that time, five United Methodist churches in North Philadelphia. They had applied for a US-2 um, a couple years ago and hadn't gotten one. And so they were in the system, but not mm -hmm. necessarily currently in mm -hmm. the system. And so they allowed that. I met with the director. Um, they needed additional support, uh, and so um, in July of 
1978. I came to the Midtown Parish, moved into what's now Serenity House. Arch Street owns the building uh, at 12th and Lehigh. Moved in there and uh, lived there for the next um, 13 years. Two years as a US2 and then leveraged that into a full-time appointment. Mm -hmm. Lived there until I got married, and then moved to Germantown. So that two years at Cookman United Methodist Church and the Midtown Parish uh, turned into 15 wow. total years. And you were like, you really had to fight for to stay in Philadelphia. Right. Like. So was there like any quantifiable thing that you could say that was like the reason, or were you just like, this is where I know I'm being called? I think I was committed to um, racial justice, committed mm -hmm. to living really at a grassroots level, um, never ever afraid of not having all the resources needed. I grew up as a kid, never had never had a, um, a moment in my childhood where I wanted for anything, but we also were resilient. We used and they do with what we had. Um, so I think, I th and I, I saw this as really the place where I needed, I was going to grow the most. Mm -hmm. uh, and where I thought the church needed to grow the most. Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of reflecting on that. I don't know if I knew that at the time, but I think that was part of my um, inner reflection about that work. Uh, it was urgent work, oftentimes. Um, very hard work at times. Emotionally and spiritually and physically. Um, but for me, the church has always made a commitment to being present in places that um, often are neglected by our, by our civil systems. Mm -hmm. And I was committed to that early on. And I think that experience came when I was in that Germantown internship mm -hmm. um, during my college year. Um, so with that, you clearly went through that entire process with the Methodist Church, right? Methodist, grew up Methodist, Methodist University, Methodist Seminary, Methodist Appointments. Did you ever think about going to a different denomination? Uh, the only time I ever thought about that was uh, during and right after uh, Frank Schaefer, a clergy colleague in this uh, annual conference was tried for performing the wedding of his openly gay son. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Um, uh, I just was uh, speechless. Um, could not fathom how the church could be so vindictive and so hateful and so harsh. I thought at that moment about switching to another denomination, mm. but then quickly kind of reverted 
to the position that we were going to going to fight from within and make it right. Because, frankly, and I think what we've lived through in the last year and a half, almost two years now with the pandemic, and, and prior to that even, all of the racial justice work that we've done, that needs to be done, that there is no institution that doesn't need the liberating love of God and the actual hands and feet of Jesus after bringing about justice and ultimately a peaceful, beloved community. So going to another place would have just meant there, there would be more work to do. Mm. So I might as well work within the system where I have uh, a network of relationships where we've already organized and continue to work through that. And there is a sense of sometimes your sense of justice makes you have to move or mm. leave. Um, I, I honor that when people do that. But for me, that hasn't happened yet. Mm. So it was almost a sense of like, this is my home and I'm going to work on my home to bring. Yeah, and I had this sense of sort of the, uh, the best of the Westland sort of heritage and roots that we live into. You know, um, the example of John Wesley, the example of Jesus being, you know, taking and being present in the moment, in the mm -hmm. context. And not ex not expecting to, um, at least in John Wesley's case, not expecting to, to change it overnight, mm -hmm. but to be held accountable each day for the, the time you spend in making your community and your um, congregation and your world a better place. Uh, so speaking of that work, you've kind of been doing that right for a long time now, and you've been pastor for 18 years. Here, I've been. Here. It's um, since 70, like 42, 43 years. Oh, it's 43 years. Um, so, somewhere around. I'm not really good at math. <laughs> um, so over that time, like with what you've learned, what is your like favorite part of it, and what's something you kind of struggle with in the position? Yeah, I uh, I like it all. I mean, my favorite part is you have so many different disciplines within one discipline that you need to to put together, organize in a way. Um, so it's a, like a living, breathing organization or organism. You've got all these moving parts. And I like I like the moving parts. Uh, whether it's administration or whether it's program or whether it's preaching or whether it's pastoral care, whether it's community engagement, whether it's advocacy and justice work, whether it's, um, you know, sort of packing a lunch for someone who, who's hungry or it's scrubbing the floor because um, uh, the roof leaked again. Um, all of that, I think, is ministry and it's really the ability and the the privilege afforded a person in my position to be in the in in the in people's lives in so many intimate ways um, is really um, I think what sustains sustains me. Um, I love working with children and knucklehead youth. I mean that's <laughs> uh, that that's a joy. Um, 
teaching, learning together, growing together. Um, one of the things I think I find most difficult and challenging is really two things. One is dealing with a denomination that is so politicized and so um, fractured and I think way out of touch as, a, as, a, as an institution with the local church. Mm. Um, I do value the connectionalism of the United Methodist Church, where that structure affords that opportunity. But I think um, we've gotten so um, compartmentalized and fractured that so much of that general church uh, loses sight of what it really means to do ministry at the grassroots level. Um, and that's it's hard to be part of that, uh, even though it's a necessary part, it's hard to be part of that. The other thing that is so um, uh, hard is like our um, our coming to the whole sort of white people I'm talking about now primarily, and especially white white men, straight white men, coming to the conclusion that. Um, there's so much more to this church than us, yeah. right? The whole sense of coming to grips with white privilege and white supremacy, how that's been part of Christianity for a long time, but how it's also been part of our ministries uh, in our time. Uh, I think it's discouraging to see how hard it is to get people to kind of shift away from that. Yeah. And not just you know people in the pew, but clergy as well. Yeah. Um, and systems that are kind of propped up by all of that. Another thing that, um, and I, I've seen that in the way um, resources are allocated. Um, I see that in, in the way who makes decisions, who speaks up the most. Uh, that white supremacy, white privilege that pervades our church still is something I hope and pray we can wrestle with and tame in a way that is, is uh, effective uh, and liberating. Uh, I've always been in buildings that were in great need of repair. Uh, the United Methodist Church does not have a very good uh, sort of connectional way in which we can care for aging buildings, especially aging buildings in which ministry is taking place. Um, and it becomes a dilemma, right, to, to figure out putting resources into a building or resources into a program. Uh, you still need buildings to do programming. Um, but it's like this building here, we have a major issue with our steeple. We're gonna, we're gonna hopefully address that. Um, but I think uh, that adds an added burden and weight uh, to doing the kinds of things we do on a day-to-day -day basis that meets the most basic needs of people in a city that is, that is still considered one of the most poverty-stricken cities of the 10 most popular cities in our nation. Um, so you have to do both and. You have to figure out how to raise money to fix a spire in a building, and you have to figure out how to keep resources coming in to meet the basic needs of the people around you. Mm -hmm. um, that's good work, but it's hard work. Do you ever, so it's good work, but it's hard work is the perfect like summation, I feel like, to that. Um, when you are like kind of being dragged down by that, or like, you know, after the wedding trial when you were kind of being dragged down, 
what is it that kind of like rejuvenates you or helps you to like be like, yes, this is my call and I want to continue working at it? I think there's always um, what some would call uh, a workaround. There's always another uh, faithful, justice seeking, centered, liberation uh, pathway through all of that. And I think I'm a positive, optimistic person. I, I go to that place then, okay? This isn't really what I want it to be. This is what, this is what we want it to be. Who, who else has uh, an idea or a passion for trying something different mm -hmm. and just rolling up your sleeves and doing some work that's going to create a different narrative. I think part of our work as preachers, as teachers, as community leaders, as pastors, as caregivers, uh, as just simply people of faith, uh, is to tell the story that re-establishes hope. Right? That's our work. We, we must bring hope into every situation. And so I think after a period of kind of like lament, which I, I think is different than um, Lament is different than, can't think of a word, it's, it's deeper than just being discouraged, it's deeper than disagreeing with something, it really is this sense that it can be different, it's not yet, and I'm sad, deeply sad about that, mm -hmm. but that can be different is really what I want to latch on to. Mm -hmm. And so I'll express my deep regrets, but I'll generate, at the same time, begin generating um, an exodus moment, mm -hmm. a possibility. It's funny, because as you've been talking, I've been saying, like, wow, you're optimistic, <laughs> like, very optimistic person. Um, so, one more question. Um, what is the best piece of advice you could give to someone listening who is thinking about being a pastor in seminary but uncertain or anywhere along that realm of finding their call, what's the best piece of advice you could give? Yeah. Um, or that you have been given? Um, I think practice, yeah. get engaged, allow yourself and find a place that's a learning community that's willing to help you learn and they're willing to learn alongside of you. Um, if it's pastoral ministry, you know, reach, visit, go to community meetings, you know, um, learn what it's like to engage congregations in critical conversations around race, around gender identity, uh, the critical issues around equity in terms of the way we um, uh, use our resources. You practice all of that stuff. Find a place that's going to help you practice that. And I think interning, field education, when the matches are really good, will give you a really good sense of where your ministry can best be applied and what kind of mantle you put on whether it's uh, the mantle of pastoral 
uh, ordained ministry or whether it's becoming a deaconess or a home missioner, whether it's uh, being um, uh, the director of a nonprofit, um, whether it's merging an MDiv with a, a Masters of Social Work degree, whether it's finance uh, and administration and uh, a, a, a Masters of Divinity degree. Uh, you know, practice the things and explore the things that you, you know you're good at, but also things that you want to try. Um, and I think the best advice for anyone who is in any ministry position called to ministry is to just love the people you're with. Love them uh, in ways in which they grow and they know that their gifts and their abilities and their life, their very life is valuable to you. Um, and I think ultimately our job really is is to help people, no matter where they are in terms of their call, to discern that and then to be uh, active in it. Bringing people into active, practical ministry. And I also would say, don't be afraid to do everything and anything that a church requires. Mm. I mean, you know, learn how to unclog a clogged toilet. Uh, know that you're going to have to set up the tables and the chairs. Know that no sooner you get that done, someone's going to call you and ask you to come to the hospital because some loved one is in need and they're dying or they're having a critical health issue. Know that your day could be a change of clothes three or four or five times. Mm -hmm. uh, because you've got to be prepared to be ready and available in the context of that time. Be, be, be humble. I mean, that is the most, you know, humility and integrity and loving your people are the most important aspects of any kind of ministry. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the How Did I Get Here podcast.